What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Martian MMA podcast. This week, we are going to be analyzing the UFC 266 pay-per-view going down this Saturday, September 25th, 2021. And this is going to be a solo podcast. I've been recording podcasts with my buddy Ozzy lately, and we're still going to have an episode coming out this week. But I figured I would record a solo podcast considering this is a pay-per-view card. And I had previously done solo podcasts for the past 150 UFC cards or something like that, but we're kind of going through a rough stretch of UFC events the past few weeks, so I've decided to only do uh, the Martian and Ozzy podcast for these weaker cards, but considering this is a pay-per-view, I figured I would uh, go ahead and do another solo edition podcast. So with that being said, let's get right into these 13 fights. I'm going to be analyzing uh, all of these fights in one take, not going to be cutting anything out. So just one long continuous take of all 13 fights. So uh, bear with me if it gets a little bit um, choppy at times, but we're going to persist through that. First fight is in the featherweight division. We have Omar Morales as the minus 151 favorite, Jonathan Pierce as the plus 131 underdog. And this is a fun fight to start the card. Uh, two former lightweights dropping down to 145. They both had some pretty good success at 145 so far. Um, JSP is more of a diverse fighter. He is a decent striker and an offensive wrestler as well, while Morales is kind of just a striker purely. Uh, he's kind of a medium output striker. He likes throwing leg kicks. He's got some decent boxing. I don't think the guy's striking is anything too diverse. He's kind of got some meat and potatoes striking. And uh, JSP, not really proven in the striking realm, but he is a good offensive wrestler. He can hit takedowns. He seems to get better as the fight goes on. He's got good cardio, and he's coming off of a good win over Kai Kamaka in his last fight. He had a close round one, probably lost round one versus Kamaka in the striking, but continued to adapt, got some takedowns in that fight, and ended up smashing Kamaka for a ground and pound TKO in round two. And that was an impressive victory from JSP there. A pretty similar matchup as well, a fellow orthodox striker. And considering that we haven't seen Morales' takedown defense tested much in the UFC, I'm kind of leaning towards JSP being the side here as the dog, just because we don't have that relevant footage of Morales defending takedowns. If I were betting Morales here at minus 150, I would want to be pretty confident that he could defend these takedowns of JSP and keep the fight standing and outstrike him pretty decisively to justify that minus 150. But I'm not confident that he's going to do that. I think the striking could be close, and I think I favor JSP if the fight gets to the floor with his wrestling and with his ground and pound in his top game. He does seem to be pretty good on top. Uh, heavy position and throws a lot of ground and pound so I like JSP here I'll be signing with him as my pick as the underdog and um, no bet on this fight as of now but I lean towards JSP being the side as the dog that's going to take us to the next fight in the welterweight division we have Matt Selmosberger minus 600 taking on Martin Sano Jr. plus 400 Martin Sano getting into the UFC on a favor from Nick Diaz. He's been friends with Nick Diaz for a long time. And the guy has no fights in four and a half years, no wins in seven years. His last fight was a draw, to be fair, but the guy doesn't look like a good fighter at all. His distance striking doesn't look good. It looks very sloppy. He seems to have no concept of footwork. He kind of just rushes at you really recklessly and leaves himself wide open for takedowns. He doesn't have good defensive grappling. He struggles getting off of his back. I mean, there's... Very little good things I can say about Sano. The only good thing I can say is after losing round one in his most recent fight, he did come back well to win rounds two and three. But unfortunately for him, he lost a point uh, grabbing the cage, and that fight ended up a draw. So his last fight was a draw. I guess he did show some signs of hope by being able to win, win rounds two and three there. But I've seen no impressive skill from Sano. 
And considering he's fighting a pretty well-rounded guy in Samuelsberger, uh, Samuelsberger is a competent boxer, a solid wrestler. He can keep top position and shoot takedowns for the full 15 minutes. I think that Samuelsberger should win the fight wherever he wants to, but the wrestling is definitely going to be the easiest path here. So I'll be uh, looking to see Samuels wrestle here. And um, minus 600, this is a pretty safe parlay piece. It's really hard to imagine Sano winning this fight coming off of that long, long layoff. And considering that he wasn't even a good fighter before the layoff. So uh, Samuelsberger should be really safe here he might even get a finish in rounds two or three here so maybe look at some Semmelsberger uh, late finish props that's going to take us to the next fight, which is in the middleweight division. A brand new fight just announced about an hour ago. We have uh, Nick Maximov taking on Cody Brundage. Maximov currently minus 265, Brundage plus 225. Crazy line on Bet Online right now. I expect this to be bet down pretty heavily in the next 24, 48 hours because this line is just off. I honestly think Cody Brundage is kind of a better version of Nick Maximov. I've seen more proven striking and boxing out of Brundage. Uh, his his takedowns and top game look good. The guy's heavy on top. He can pass guard. He can submit you with arm triangles. And I just think he's more well-rounded and proven than, than Maximov is because Maximov is definitely a wrestle-heavy guy. Um, he is a good jiu-jitsu grappler of his own right, competed a lot in submission underground. Um, but I don't think the guy's wrestling is that anything great. And I don't think his top game is either. I mean, I've been kind of unimpressed with his top game. I've seen him lose position a few times on opponents. He goes for a back take. He ends up falling off the back take and ending on bottom. I don't think he's too positionally sound. So I'm not overly impressed with Maximov. And his striking is pretty much non-existent. We have never seen the guy strike for long periods of time. He is constantly shooting takedowns right away. So if the fight stays in the feet, I favor Brundage. Uh, we saw Brundage uh, have a tough fight in his last fight, lost round two of that fight, but came back big in round three and submitted his opponent. And I think Brundage is beating the better competition, honestly. So I'll be siding with Brundage here to, as a pick outright. Even though he's coming in, making his UFC debut on very short notice, I think this is a really good matchup for him, and uh, I think I'm going to be picking him as the underdog straight up at plus 225, and likely we'll end up with a bet on him too, uh, just waiting for that line to be readily available at more books before I bet it. So I like Brundage to pull off the upset here. The next fight's going to take us in the lightweight division. We have Uros Medic as the minus 118 favorite, Jalen Turner minus 102 on the other side. Uh, very competitive fight here. Uh, Medic is somewhat unproven. The guy is a southpaw striker. Definitely seems to have some good kickboxing skills. But in all other aspects of MMA, the guy's untested. His his takedown defense, his bottom game, his cardio untested. We've actually seen some pretty bad things in terms of his defensive grappling. We've seen him put on bottom, spend three or four minutes on his back. Um, he did get a miracle submission off of his back in one of those fights. But the guy does not look like a, a competent off or a defensive grappler and Turner not really known for hitting offensive takedowns but the guy does have I think a purple belt or brown belt in jiu-jitsu which should be a lot better than Medic and Turner did get a submission in his last fight. He was outboxing Brock Weaver really badly in that fight, was hurting him multiple times, but then eventually got the fight to the floor and submitted him with a rear naked choke. But even if the fight stays standing, I don't think Turner is going to be completely out of his depth here because Turner is a long rangey guy. It's going to be one of the first opponents in Medich's career that I think that uh, is not going to be scared of trading on the feet with him. I think Turner could really hold his own in the striking here. 
And if the fight gets down to the floor, I think Turner should have a pretty big advantage there. So that's why you see this line coming in uh, two-way action. People have been betting Turner throughout the week. And I think that's the side to be on here with how um, bad Medich has looked off his back and with how unproven his strength of schedule is. The guy really hasn't fought many good opponents. And Turner as well, you could say the same. His three or four UFC wins have come over pretty low-level competition. But still, the skill that Turner has showed, I think, is a lot more well-rounded and polished than Medich's. So I'll be siding with Turner here. I could see Medich get an early knockout. It wouldn't shock me at all. But the longer the fight goes, I think we're going to start to see the more better overall skill of Turner come out. And he should win the fight if it gets into the rounds two and three. So I'll side with Turner here. Um, I'll pick him, pick him probably by decision, maybe even late finish. But I'll go with uh, a Turner decision. But Turner submission uh, plus 600, I think the odds are here. That could be an interesting prop here. That's going to take us to the next fight in the women's flyweight division. We have uh, Talia Santos as the minus 450 favorite, Roxanne Montefiore plus 350. Roxanne Montefiore getting no easy matchups and... This is another spot where you see her as the plus two, three hundred underdog. She's no um, stranger to this role. She's always the underdog. And I think this line is definitely getting out of control. I mean, Santos only has three wins in the UFC or three fights in the UFC. Uh, one of those was a questionable performance in her debut against uh Barella, who is a really terrible fighter, and she got pushed against the cage there. She got put on bottom. She got taken down. She showed a lot of um, weaknesses that Roxanne Matafari could exploit. Roxanne is always going to get outstruck. She's a really ugly striker. Her her movement, her athleticism on the feet is quite bad. So Santos is going to be outstriking her pretty badly when the fight is on the feet. But Santos also isn't a, a super high volume machine when the fight is standing. She's not reliable to outstrike you by a huge margin like some of Roxanne's recent opponents like Araujo and like um, Andrea Lee. Those women uh, pump out a lot of volume and they win the striking by a huge margin. Meanwhile, Santos, not the highest level striker or the highest volume striker. She kind of just pumps those uh, front kicks out, those knees to the body. Um, so she's not going to be dominating the striking by a massive margin. Um, the reason why I bring this up, not because I think Roxy has a chance to win the striking, but if this fight is striking for three or four minutes and Santos is edging the round, but Roxanne comes in with that late takedown, She's clearly capable of stealing the round. And that's what Roxy's going to have to do. She's going to have to hit takedown. She's going to have to get on top. That's where we have seen Santos show some weaknesses. And I think the market is just over overvaluing Santos's two most recent victories. She did pick up 30-27 decisions over Robertson and McCann. But I just think everything went well for her in those fights. Uh, Robertson is jumping guard and making bonehead decisions. Um... I'll probably rip into Robertson a little bit more uh, on the uh, the podcast with Ozzy, but just a terrible performance from Robertson there. Uh, McCann looked pretty bad as well, got taken down multiple times, got outstruck on the feet. Um, but I just think that Santos isn't proven enough to deserve minus 450 here. Roxy, like I said, she's always used to being the underdog. She's used to getting outstruck on the feet. She needs, she knows she needs to get the fight inside, get that body lock, hit a takedown, and get top position. And if Roxanne was able to do that against uh, Andrea Lee just about a year ago, Andrea Lee's a pretty proven fighter at 125. Um, Definitely more of a takedown weakness than Talia Santos, but I still think there's a possibility that Roxanne could win this fight in her typical underdog fashion by hitting those takedowns 
and winning the fight with her grappling. So uh, Roxanne's definitely the side here at plus 350. There's no way you could be laying the chalk on Santos minus 450. Wouldn't even parlay her. Um, and uh, some props to this fight, Roxanne, uh, by submission or decision, plus 400. It's a little bit better than Moneyline. You're, you're probably best off taking Moneyline at plus 350. And then lastly, uh, the fight to end by submission on either side, plus 650. I think we're going to see takedowns from both women here. I think both women are co uh, capable of hitting offensive takedowns. So for a fight that should involve a good amount of grappling, fight ends by sub, plus 650. I'm definitely willing to, to stab on that. Um, so that's going to do it for that fight. Sorry if you hear, hear some Discord notifications in the background, but we are rolling through this card five fights down. The next fight is in the heavyweight division. Uh, we have Chris Dockhaus as the minus 205 favorite. Shamil Abdurmakhanov, I don't even know how to say his last name. Shamil, that's all you need to know, plus 175. And I think this is an example of some recency bias going into this line. Um, Shamil lost his last fight, got finished in his last fight, and hasn't fought for two years. So I think the market, the public, is kind of forgetting that Shamil is a very solid fighter. The guy has capable boxing. He outboxed um, Andre Arlovsky, Marchin Tabura, finished Marchin Tabura. He has hit takedowns on opponents before and top-gamed them. So the guy is a, a solid striker, a solid wrestler. He really is pretty well-rounded everywhere, and it's probably going to be the toughest test of Dawkins' career. Uh, Dawkins came into the UFC just about a year ago and has had great success, uh, but it's kind of gone a little too perfect for him. I mean, three first-round knockouts. We really haven't seen the guy tested much at all, and... You know, that's why you're seeing him minus 200 here. But I think it's a bit of an overreaction because Shamil, I think, is going to be his toughest test. I think if Shamil can survive that early round one storm from Dockhouse, he's got a great chance of pulling off the upset in rounds two and three here because Dockhouse uh, isn't really... Um, used to go, his fights going late. He has most of his finishes in round one. His most recent loss is when the fight got into round two and he got knocked out by Zhu Anua. Um, so Dockhouse could be a front runner. He could be having his best success in round one and you never know what he's going to look like in rounds two and three. Uh, I'm not saying that I think Dockhouse's cardio is bad, but you got to think that the fight is going to get a lot closer if the fight gets out of round one. So I think the market is overreacting to Dockhouse's recent success with his round one knockouts here. And this is going to be the toughest test of Dockhouse's UFC career. And I think Shamil really could pull off the upset. Um, I could see Dockhouse just coming at him early. Shamil having some ring rust. Dockhouse connecting on some punches. And Shamil covers up and the fight's over. Um, but like I said, if Shamil is able to survive that round one early storm, um, we're really going to start to see what Dockhouse is made of if the fight goes long. So uh, I like this fight to, to start round two. I like for Shamil to give uh, Dockhouse a tough fight. I'd say the strategy here would be to uh, put a small bet on Shamil early uh, before the fight starts and then be prepared to live bet Shamil halfway through round one towards the end of round one uh, if he's surviving. So um, that's the plan there. I'll still go with Dockhouse as a pure pick. I think this fight should be a little closer to like minus 150, minus 170 Dockhouse though. So Shamil is the money line side here. And that's going to take us to the next fight in the lightweight division. This is as good as a prelim gets. Uh, we got Dan Hooker minus 145 taking on Nasrat Hackpress plus 125. Some controversy going on uh, this week with this fight. Um, both guys traveling internationally, New Zealand and Germany, having some trouble getting their visas. It seems like the fight is trending in a good direction with guys getting their visas and getting into the U.S. Um, but still, some hiccups could happen. This fight might not end up happening, but hopefully 
hopefully they they postpone it or they maybe give it a catch weight so these guys don't have to kill themselves to make 155 uh, but regardless, great matchup. Two uh, primarily boxers. Hooker, I'd say, is the more diverse striker of the two. He likes mixing it up with his kicks and knees more, while Nasrat is really heavy on that boxing. And this fight should be a striking fight. It's hard to imagine either guy initiating offensive grappling here. And I just think that Hooker is a lot more proven against higher level strikers than Nasrat is because Nasrat's UFC career, he's had a lot of easy matchups. He's had you know, four or five fights where he was a huge favorite going into those fights. And, you know, he did justify that price tag. He did look good, but he just hasn't faced much adversity throughout his UFC career. When we saw him take a step up in competition against Drew Dober, we saw him get knocked out in about 60 seconds there. So I'm not saying that result is super, you know, high probability i don't think that happens at a super high clip but still nasa did get clipped on early on there and since then who have we seen him against alex munoz and hafa garcia two non-top 50 lightweights i just don't think we've ever seen nasrat fight an orthodox boxer with with dangerous striking like dan hooker while we have seen Dan Hooker fight dangerous southpaw boxers. I mean, the best example is the best southpaw boxer in MMA right now, probably Dustin Poirier. We saw Dan Hooker go to war with Poirier, have some early success, won the first two rounds there. The fight was five rounds. Hooker fought at a pace he couldn't sustain. He slowed down in rounds three, four, five there. But if that's a three-round fight, he wins that fight 29-28 against Dan Hooker and or against Dustin Poirier, one of the best fighters in the world. And Hooker did a lot of good things in that fight against the southpaw. He was kicking the inside leg of Poirier. He was lighting Poirier up with uh, boxing combinations. His striking looked really sharp. And he was just so high output, so aggressive in those first two rounds. If he brings that same style to Nasrat, I think there's a good chance we see Nasrat real uncomfortable, eating some big strikes, eating those inside leg kicks. And I just think we're going to see Nasrat in a more uncomfortable spot than we're used to seeing him in. So I'm leaning towards Dan Hooker being the side here as the favorite. He's minus 145 now. I think he could be closer to, to minus 200 here. I think we're going to see a big experience advantage for Hooker. The one major concern I have around Hooker is maybe that his durability is permanently damaged. I mean, he went to absolute war with Dustin Poirier over five rounds. And he had incredible durability that fight, ate some massive shots. But then in his next fight against Chandler, we saw him get dropped and TKO'd early on in that fight with pretty much the first punch that landed. So maybe we're seeing Hooker's uh, durability permanently compromised who knows he might not be the same fighter after that war with Dustin Poirier but I'm not quite willing to go there yet I still think he's durable enough to to eat some big shots from Nasrat and come back with his own and I think this is going to be a, a really fun high intensity striking fight and I got to trust the more proven the more versatile striker in Dan Hooker here so I'll be picking Dan Hooker uh, to win the fight by a decision or knockout and he might even be worth a bet let's pray this fight happens hopefully these guys get to america safely and this fight um you know hopefully they make weight they don't have to cut too too much weight too quickly you never want to see that happen so um that's going to take us to the last prelim on the card again great prelim fight we got marab davalashvili minus 256 taking on marlon Moraes plus 216 
Um, another fight where we haven't seen Marlon face this type of matchup before. So it's hard to be um, insanely confident in either side here because throughout Marlon's UFC career, he has not faced many wrestlers. Um, you probably didn't have to go back to his World Series of Fighting fights to, to really see how he does against dedicated wrestlers. Um, he was briefly taken down by John Dodson, by Henry Cejudo, um, but... There's just not a whole lot of tape out there of Marlon Marais defending takedowns, but these guys have trained together in the New Jersey, New York area uh, for years before. I'm sure they're very familiar to one another. Um, but I, I do see Marlon Marais needing a finish to win this fight. Uh, the guy has looked, you know, flakier and flakier as of late. I mean, against really high-level bantamweights, against really elite-level strikers like Font and Sandhagen. So I can't give the guy too, uh, you know, I can't criticize him too hard because he's been fighting fellow top three, top four bantamweights. And sure, he got knocked out by them, but those guys are a different level striker than Marab is. Uh, Marab is going to be looking for his takedowns. The guy shoots 15, 20 takedowns a fight, and he's likely going to hit takedowns on Marab here, or on uh, Marais. Um, I think Marais has a good chance of standing up from those takedowns, not spending too much time on bottom, but with Marab being such an output machine, I mean, this guy is shooting 15 takedowns. He's attempting 250 strikes. He's an incredible round winner against a guy who is not really known for his round winning ability, who is known for his finishing ability. So if Marias wants to win the fight, he's going to likely need a round one finish. He's going to have to land that head kick, land that guillotine on Marab when he shoots for a takedown. Because I think that the, the pace, the wrestling pressure, and just the nonstop output of Marab is going to wear over um, Marias as the fight goes. And if the fight goes to decision, I mean, you have to have to favor um, Marab Navalashvili here with that constant output of his. Um, I don't think the guy's ever, I think he's lost decisions before the UFC. The only UFC decision he's lost was that um, controversial Ricky Simone one. But if that fight actually went to the full 15 minutes, I think he should have won that decision technically. But, um, and the Frankie Signs fight too. Regardless, um, Rab is incredible when the fight goes to the decision. And I think that that's what, what's going to happen here. I actually do have a bet tracked in this fight. Uh, I found a, a great line. Shout out to uh, Danny Lags, Lags the capper. Um, he found Rab by knockout or decision minus 135 um so his money line here is minus 250 at around 75 percent um yet marab by knockout or decision is below 60 percent i don't think marab is submitting marais here um so i like that line a lot and maybe a good hedge for that would be marais in round one plus 900 uh because i do believe if the fight gets out of round one it's going to heavily favor uh, marab and there's also a good chance that Marais is just shot. He faced back-to-back -back knockouts, uh, looked pretty bad in both of those fights, and we could be seeing the end of Marais's career. Um, so I like having that knockout uh, as the extra cushion, um, but Marab by decision is going to be the pick, and that's going to take us to the main card, UFC 266 five-fight main card. We're going to start things off in the women's flyweight division. We have um, Jessica Andrade, minus 255, taking on Cynthia Calvillo, plus 215. Um, I don't see many areas where Calvillo can win this fight. I guess the the only way I see her winning is hitting takedowns, staying in top position, and winning two out of three rounds. I definitely don't see Calvillo submitting um, Andrade. I don't see her TKO in her from top. So if you like Calvillo here, I would... I guess I would say that she is the money line side just because I'm not really interested in playing Andrade minus 250. But if you like Calvillo here, I would recommend taking her by decision plus 490 on FanDuel. I think that's actually pretty good value. Um, if Calvillo is winning the fight, it is heavily skewed towards decision in my opinion. 
So if you like Calvillo, make sure you check out that prop. Um, but I really got to look at Chukagian fights with both of these women to, to see how they compare. Um, we saw Calvillo attempt several takedowns on Chukagian and got them all stuffed. She did hit one brief single leg in that fight, but she literally got like three seconds of top time. Uh, meanwhile, we saw Andrade hit two takedowns on Chukagian. She slammed her one. She hit a nice takedown the other time. And it's just crazy to see the difference in success they had wrestling. It just shows you how much of a physical uh, powerhouse Andrade is, um, especially when you look at the finish of that fight. She hit one little short hook to the body of Chukagian, and it finished Chukagian. I mean, the only other woman to finish Chukagian uh, was Valentina Shevchenko, and Chukagian's had a ton of UFC experience. So the fact that Andrade was able to shut her down with just one body shot like that just proves how powerful Andrade is at this 125 pound weight class. So the striking I think could be competitive here, but the margin for error for Andrade is huge. She's so durable. She can lose four minutes of a round and land one big punch or hit one big slam and win that round back. So that's why I'm siding uh, pretty confidently here in Andrade. I think that she has the more dominant wrestling and top game of the two, and she's also the more damaging and powerful striker. So I see it being a pretty hard fight for Calfield to win unless she gets um, top time and wins two out of three rounds here. So, uh, I like Calvio by decision at plus 490 for a small bet, but not much else interesting uh, in this in this fight in terms of a bet. Uh, I will be picking Andrade probably by decision. I think Calvio is probably tough enough to, to grind out to a decision. That's going to take us to the next fight in the middle, or excuse me, the heavyweight division. We got Curtis Blades minus 310 taking on Jarzino Rosenstrike plus 260. Extremely easy fight to break down, in my opinion. I mean, it's striker versus grappler. Rosenstrike, the, the low-volume counter-puncher. He's going to be looking to find that perfect counter shot to knock out Blades on his way in, like Derek Lewis was able to do in his last fight. But... The difference about that is, I think that Rosenstrike is just such a bad defensive grappler that Blades isn't going to spend any time striking here. I mean, Blades is a serviceable striker. His striking has been steadily improving. Um, he outstruck Junior Dos Santos. I mean, I think Blades actually had an easier time beating Dos Santos than Rosenstrike did for what it's worth. Um, but why give Rosenstrike any opportunity to win? I mean, if Curtis Blades shoots a low single leg from 15 feet away, I still think he's going to be hitting that takedown on Rosenstrike here. Uh, Rosenstrike's body, his frame just is not built for wrestling. You can see the weakness in his defensive grappling, his bottom game. He just really doesn't know how to get off of his back uh, when he gets people on top of him. And Curtis Blades has two modes. He's really a strange fighter. Sometimes he hits takedowns and just cruises to a decision um, like he did in the Volkov fight, for example. Other times, he's looking to drop absolute hammers and, and kill his opponents with his ground and pound. Um, he finished Overeem viciously. He finished Shamil, uh, Shamil pretty badly. Um, so it's really a question of, is Blades going to show some enthusiasm and land some ground and pound? Because after Blades hits that takedown, with Rosenstrike having no ability to stand up, I think if Blades just unleashes ground and pound, he should get a TKO whenever he wants here. So I'll be picking Blades TKO. I think he's going to want to kind of put a, a stamp on this performance after getting knocked out in his last fight. Wants to jump back in that title contention. So getting a finish is probably the best way to do that. 
And I mean, if he can finish guys like Shamil and Overeem off of uh, off of their backs, there is no reason in the world why he shouldn't fi- finish Rosenstrike here. So if you like Rosenstrike, take him by knockout. Probably take him by first round knockout. I can't see him winning the fight any other way. One takedown from Blades, the fight is likely going to be over. Um, He's going to either get four or five minutes of top time, either finish Rosenstrike, or Rosenstrike's going to be so worn out from being on bottom so long that he's not going to have that knockout power or speed to catch Blades on the feet. So I think Blades is going to wrestle his way to an easy victory here, and he's actually going to finish Rosenstrike in round two with that ground and pound. Uh, that's going to take us to the next fight, the first of five or the first of three five-round fights on this card. Let's hope these fights don't all go the distance because uh, we could be ending up with this card going for three or four hours at that rate. Um, so the first of those three five-round fights is the rematch between Robbie Lawler as the minus one twenty-three favorite, taking on Nick Diaz as the plus one hundred three underdog. This fight took place back in 2004, 17 years ago. Uh, Crazy to think that they're fighting this late uh, in their careers. And let's get a little statistics out of the way here. Diaz uh, has not fought in five years, uh, actually six and a half years, sorry, um, since Anderson Silva in January of 2015. I thought he put up a respectable effort in that fight against Silva, obviously fighting one of the greatest fighters ever, up a weight class, and he was never really like blown out of the water. He competed in the striking exchanges the entire time, never really had any prolonged moments of success there, but um, definitely didn't look totally out of his depth either. Um, so Diaz also hasn't won a fight uh, since 2011 against BJ Penn. Uh, Robbie Lawler is on a four or five fight losing streak um, and really struggled against high level fighters but still he he is Robbie Lawler just looks so bad in his past few fights um and it's hard to really judge him too harshly because like I said they're against top 10 uh level UFC welterweights uh, but he has lost an insane amount of rounds in a row I mean he got shut out five rounds to zero against RDA against Colby he got shut out against Neil Magny and the Neil Magny fight most recently it was a huge concern because he struck with Magny for the first 90 seconds and then he made the, the idiotic mistake of trying to shoot a takedown on Neil Magny. Neil Magny easily reversed it and then the last 13 minutes of the fight was Neil Magny just dominating Lawler in, in the grappling. Um, that's not too relevant for this fight because Nick Diaz is probably not going to be looking to do any type of grappling here. He may be looking to clinch and land some dirty boxing knees uh, against the cage or something like that but he's certainly not going to be looking to offensively wrestle like neil magny was and going back and talking about their first fight a little bit um i really think that lawler didn't know how to fight southpaws at all back then he's definitely grown more accustomed to it over his career he's had a long much more established and prestigious career since nick diaz has uh, obviously rising to that welterweight championship run in 2015 and he was an incredible fighter in that 2013 to 2015 run has definitely dropped off the past few years but you got to think lawler has been so much more active we've seen him in the cage you know six or seven times since nick diaz has last uh, fought so I think there's a lot less uh, questions up in the air about Robbie Lawler, um, but we also have more answers about him. We know that the guy is not the fighter he once was. We know he doesn't have that same tenacity or, or 
power about him. I mean, he's been losing fights to Colby Covington, losing fights to Neil Magny, and you'd think he'd really bite down on the mouthpiece and try to end the fight via knockout. He just hasn't had that intensity, that aggression that he that he needs. Um, so Nick Diaz, his style, I think, will actually translate pretty well to being older. I mean, the guy plots forward with pretty basic footwork and likes to throw hands. He's a boxer. He throws the occasional outside leg kick, but the guy doesn't have an athletically demanding style. So I think even though he's 37 or 38, hasn't fought in five or six years, I think that his style is still pretty suiting for this old age of his. Um, one thing we also got to bring up is uh, Nick Diaz, what he's been doing for these past few years. And, and I followed the guy on Instagram for a long time, and I swear every single day for four or five years straight, this guy was out at clubs in Vegas getting drunk all hours of the night. Like, I honestly think he might have been drinking five nights a week for five years straight. Um, so you really got to question how Diaz's body is at this point in his career, whether he will be able to take those same shots as he always did. This fight is at 185, so he likely won't have it be to cut much weight for this one. Um, but I do sort of trust Diaz to show up in, in shape. I mean, the guy is, you know, a triathlete. He, he knows how to, to get in shape, and I think his cardio will be pretty good here. So I like this fight to go the distance. Um, I like it to, to go later into the fight. I actually bet starts round three on Fandle here, minus 205. Um, that was a great line that was available for a while when the books didn't know this fight was five rounds, and they haven't voided the bet yet. So um, looks like they're going to keep that one. So um, I like this fight to go the full five rounds. I don't think either guy has tremendous knockout power to hurt each other. I think both guys have pretty reliable cardio, especially Nick Diaz. And I just think the fight is going to go the full five. I think uh, neither guy is going to really put each other away in this one. And I think it's going to be a competitive striking fight where I, I do honestly favor Nick Diaz. Um, I'm just going to be picking Diaz to, to land the better punches, to have the more consistent output and to uh, win the fight on the judges' scorecards. But nothing would really shock me in this fight outside of a finish. Uh, either guy winning by decision wouldn't sh uh, surprise me. So I think the best bet to make here is the fight going the distance, is the fight starting the later rounds, uh, maybe the over, something like that. So uh, no concrete opinions, no confident opinions on who's going to win. I'm leaning towards Diaz uh, winning the decision, but uh, the best bet here is the fight going the distance, and uh, that's going to do it for this one. We're going to move on to the co-main event, Valentina Shevchenko defending her women's flyweight belt. Uh, the line currently has her minus 1,700, taken on Lauren Murphy, plus 850. Not a whole lot to say about this fight. Uh, I do like Lauren Murphy. Um, she's definitely won most of us some money along her current run, cashed as an underdog several times. Got some fort fortunate split decisions along the way, but... She has, you know, kind of earned this title shot. So it's good for her that she's getting the opportunity and everything. But I do see her kind of drawing dead here. I don't see any area where she's going to have uh, a chance to win against Shevchenko. I guess the the best chance she has is to hit takedowns and get on top of Shevchenko to win three out of five rounds. Uh, we did see Shevchenko lose a round against Jennifer Maya uh, due to being stuck on bottom in one of her most recent fights. So I mean, I guess that's the only shred of possibility Murphy has at winning the fight. Uh, the striking should be pretty one-sided. Shevchenko should have a massive speed advantage and be able to counter Murphy uh, pretty much at will. And if Shevchenko wants to, she should be able to take Murphy down pretty easily and smash her with a ground and pound on top. Maybe look for a finish like she typically does. But I've noticed a bit of a trend in Shevchenko's past 
eight fights, she has gone decision, finish, decision, finish, decision, finish, and so on. So it seems like she shows aggression every other fight. Um, you know, the the eye fight, she was obviously smashing her with kicks, knocks her out, then goes right into the boring Carmouche fight and now grapples her for the full five rounds. Then she annihilates Chukagian and then takes a break against Jennifer Maya. And she comes right back and uh, demolishes Andrade. Now she's probably due for another five-round decision. It seems like Shevchenko doesn't want to build up too, mo- too much momentum, you know? She doesn't want to gain too many fans, so... According to the trend, we're probably going to get a five-round dominant decision from Shevchenko here, but I do think she can, she can finish. I mean, if she gets on top of Murphy, Murphy can escape, and Shevchenko will get that mounted crucifix and just smash her with ground and pound. So I, full disclosure, suck at picking Shevchenko outcomes. Every time I pick her to finish, it goes to the decision. Every time I pick her decision, it she ends by finish. So I'll pick her to win by round one, two, three finish here. I think if she shows aggression, if she shows that same tenacity that she did against Andrade, she should finish Murphy easily here. So uh, I like Murphy. I'm happy she's getting this title shot, but hopefully she doesn't get beat up too badly here. And uh, hopefully she can go back to uh, being an underdog and having a good chance to win the fights as uh, as an underdog in the future for us because she certainly doesn't have a good chance to win this one. So that's going to take us to the main event. In the featherweight division for the championship, we got champion Alexander Volkanovsky, minus 175, taking on Brian Ortega, plus 150. This fight is finally taking place. It was supposed to happen back in March. The fight got canceled due to COVID. Then they ended up t- uh, coaching the ultimate fighter. Now we're finally getting the matchup. So this is a good fight. Um, but I really see it as a good fighter versus a great fighter. Ortega is is good everywhere. Um, the guy's striking looked pretty good in the Korean zombie fight. We know he's a great uh, submission grappler. Not really too skilled in the offensive or defensive wrestling categories, but um, the guy's extremely tough, durable, can take a beating and come back at you later in the fight. He won several of his fights by comeback round three finish. So Ortega's a really fun fighter to watch. Uh, I do like the guy in general, but... Um, Volkanovski maybe kind of a bit of the opposite. He's not really the most fun fighter to watch. He kind of fights in a more methodical and calculated way. He is one of the best round winners in the sport. Um, he has great striking output. He can land good strikes in the clinch. He can control you against the cage. He can hit takedowns and control you on top. Uh, the guy really can do everything. And he's coming off of... As good of a victory you can get in MMA, that is back-to-back victories over Max Holloway. Fought 10 full rounds against Holloway and um, 50 minutes in total. And there's a good argument that uh, Volkanovski won like 40 out of those 50 minutes against Max Holloway. Most of that time taking place in the distance striking. I mean, the guy outstruck Max Holloway at distance over five rounds two times. That's incredibly impressive that's as impressive as a win gets in mma i know some people don't think he won that holloway fight the rematch but in my opinion he did win rounds three four and five and he was kind of in control of rounds one and two honestly before max got those late uh round one and round two knockdowns so Volkanovski won you know 80 percent of that most recent uh holloway fight so the guy is extremely skilled in all aspects of mma Love the way he kicks the legs. He can kick the inside and the outside of the legs and really just diminish your movement. And he also has really good boxing that he can mix in with those leg kicks. Um, I think the distance striking between these guys has the potential to be close. Um, 
Ortega is a long athletic guy. Uh, he does land some good distance strikes at time to time. Uh, but his most recent performance that most people are going to be thinking of is the Korean zombie fight. And Korean zombie is kind of an easy matchup. The guy stands right in front of you. He doesn't pressure much. And Ortega did look very sharp in that fight, outstriking Korean Zombie over the full five rounds. But I just don't think Korean Zombie really presented many problems for Ortega. He didn't pose many threats. He didn't push the pace. When he was losing, he didn't up the aggression and try to come back. He kind of just cruised to a decision loss there. Um, so I, I do believe that Ortega looked good and improved in that fight i bet him in that fight as an underdog but i don't think it's extremely relevant to this fight against volkanovsky i just see ortega not having much success against volkanovsky he is not the offensive wrestling type i mean the guy is a submission grappler he's known for his submissions but he really has hit a remarkably low amount of takedowns throughout his ufc career i mean the guy's had 10 or 12 fights and he's only hit about three takedowns um, so i cannot rely on him to take volkanovsky down I can't rely on him to win three out of five rounds in the striking. So I do think that Ortega is going to need to finish to win this fight. And I think it's going to need to come in the first three rounds because as the fight goes, Volkanovski makes more and more reads. He figures you out. He breaks you down with that damage. And I think that uh, Ortega is going to need to strike early or he's not going to strike at all here. So the way I would like to play Ortega if I were betting him is Ortega in rounds one, two, and three. That was at plus 440 on Fandle the last time I I checked it might have been bet a little bit since then uh, but if Ortega is winning it's an by an early finish in my opinion catching Volkanovski with some big strike and uh, you know translating that into a finish whether it be a TKO or a submission Ortega does have a small window to win if he can catch um, Volkanovski early maybe hurt him with a strike like Holloway did um, he might be able to, to turn that into a finish, uh, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think Volkanovski is going to, to systematically break him down, um, probably outstrike him at distance, get him in the clinch and waste some time there, take him down. And I think that we're going to see Volkanovski uh, win all areas of this fight, the, the distance striking, the clinch, and the grappling. And I think Volkanovski is going to win a pretty comfortable decision here. So I'll, I'll go with Ortega to win one of the first three rounds, but I think... Uh, I think we're going to see uh, Volkanovski win four out of five rounds here. So I'll go with Volkanovski by 49-46 decision. Um, I think this is pretty likely to go to the decision if Volkanovski is winning. He's not really the type of guy to pour it on you and look for a finish. And as we've seen in Ortega's fight against uh, Holloway, he is insanely durable. So it's going to take a lot to finish Ortega. And I think that Volkanovski probably just cruises to a decision here. So I uh, like Volkanovski, his money line here, have two units on his money line, average 162 odds, minus 162. Also, a prop for Volkanovski is a Volk 4-5 decision at plus 100 available on FanDuel. Um, so Volkanovski 49-46 is my pick here, and I'm going to be betting him as well. Um, and that's going to do it for this podcast. Uh, I breezed through all these fights pretty quickly. Um, typically, when I did the podcast in the past, I, I would cut. I would do one fight and then cut. This time, I just did it all through in one take. Uh, or maybe two takes or something. I think I did a cut halfway through, but uh, this was a pretty fast-paced podcast. Hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you all were able to get some some good information, some good betting advice, and uh, 
tune into the Martian and Ozzy podcast, which will be coming out uh, at a later time. We'll be talking about these same fights and a more, you know, conversation, discussion-based, uh, entertaining discussion. So make sure you check out that podcast as well. But thank you all for listening. Hope you all enjoyed the fights this weekend and hope you all win some bets. I'll see you before the next UFC event. Peace. Peace.